as we consider your word today. We pray all of this for your glory through Christ. Amen. Well, I invite you to join me in uh, Ephesians chapter 3 in your Bibles. Uh, We're continuing our study through the book of Ephesians, and I've really been enjoying this Ephesians 3. Once you get there, we'll read through our text together. Ephesians 3, we'll be looking at the first 13 verses. Ephesians 3, beginning in verse 1. So follow along as we read Ephesians 3, beginning in verse 1. For this cause I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ for you Gentiles. If ye have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God, which is given to me, uh, given me to you word, how that by revelation he made note unto me the mystery, as I wrote afore in a few words, whereby when ye read ye may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men, as it is now revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs and of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ by the gospel, whereof I was made a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given unto me by the effectual working of his power. Unto me, who am less than the least of all saints, is this grace given, that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to make all see what is the fellowship or what is the the stewardship or the plan of the mystery, which from the beginning of the world hath been hid in God, who created all things." to the intent that now under the principalities and powers and heavenly places might be made known by the church the manifold wisdom of God, according to the eternal purpose which he purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence by the faith of him. Wherefore, I desire that ye faint not in my tribulations for you, which is your glory." I don't know if you heard the big news over the last couple of weeks. How many of you follow the news sort of, kind of? Okay, several of you follow the news kind of, sort of. No, I'm not talking about the the big balloon that was uh, shot down this morning. Um, That was kind of interesting, seeing the collective freak out about a a big balloon floating over North America. And no, I'm not talking about the latest announcements from the Federal Reserve about interest rates and the jobs report, so that can be pretty exciting if you're following the stock market. No, I'm talking about Tom Brady and, uh, and his, his retirement. Well, I guess his, his re-retirement. Um, you know, what do you do with a car when it needs new tires? You retire it. And uh, what do you do if you're Tom Brady and you can't decide whether or not to quit? You retire and then unretire and then re-retire. But, man, the guy had an impressive career. Absolutely amazing. I'm not a big football guy, but it, you look at the numbers that he put up over the however many years, 20 years or whatever, that he played football. He won seven Super Bowls. Uh, He holds just about every record imaginable when it comes to football. And most people who care about such things would regard him as the greatest QB in history, maybe even the greatest football player of all time. Now, those of you who are into football, you can argue about that after church. Let me just tell you, I don't really care. I I grew up in Arizona where you have the Arizona Cardinals, and so it's kind of hard to get excited about a football team like that. It's hard to know what he'll do now, but I imagine that there's a a career awaiting him, you know, being a sportscaster. The poor man now only is worth $83 million. I mean, like, I don't know what he's going to do to survive now that he can't play football. Um, But as impressive as his career was, we think about what Tom Brady was able to accomplish. But you think about 100 years from now, like, what will that really matter? What will it really matter that he put up all of the records in the world and uh, had, had this incredible career? Like, what's the big takeaway? How has that, like, actually sort of changed the world and made people's lives better? You think a lot of us can look at a guy like Tom Brady and be like, man, I want to be like that when I grow up. I want to be an NFL star if you're in Alabama. I want to play for Alabama or Auburn, depending on which side of the things maybe. I want to be a sports player. That's really where it's at. And then your knees wear out and you tear your rotator cuff and it kind of ends and then you're doing something else. Here's the question I want to ask this morning. What does it mean to live a life that matters? Really, what does it mean to live a life that matters? For a lot of people, what really matters is being able to throw a a football with a really tight spiral and and hit the receiver. For a lot of people, it's being able to take a round stick and hit a round ball and then run in circles around around a field. 
for other people, what really matters is being able to get a really good job and then making the right investments and then seeing it grow at sort of 7% a year and being able then to retire early and then get a Winnebago and go to visit all the national parks. And that's what really matters in life. For other people, they say, no, 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 what really matters is family. Being able to spend, get together for Thanksgiving and Christmas and have these memories and spend time together as family. And maybe we're getting a little closer to things that, that matter there. But the reality is that eventually records will be broken. Eventually, retirement will come to an end and your Winnebago will break down and your retirement will run out and your family will move away and eventually you will die. So what is really going to matter in life when it's all said and done? We live in a day where a lot of people feel like, what, what, what is my place in the world? I feel like just another, just another person lost in the crowd, and I, I don't really know why I'm, I'm here and, and what, my, what my purpose and what my, what my mission is. What really strikes me as I read these 13 verses in Ephesians 3 is Paul's sense of mission and purpose in God's plan. Did you pick up on that? Now, it's kind of crazy. He starts in verse 1 to say, for this cause, and did you notice he doesn't actually finish his sentence? Like, Paul's grammar here is horrible. He starts off like, for this cause, I, and then he like never comes back. He interrupts himself. You ever do that where you, well, I'll tell you a story about today. I was on my way to Walmart, and then, oh, yeah, that reminded me. And then you go over here, and then you're like, what, what was the story? Like, where were we going with that? If you notice verse 14, he picks back up where he started in verse 1. For this cause, I bow my knees unto the Father. So what's happening in verse 1 is Paul is preparing to pray once again for the church uh, at, at Ephesus. But something sort of triggers something in his mind. He says, I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ for you Gentiles. He's like, I'm in prison. Remember, he's, he's under house arrest in Rome. And he's like, I'm here for you Gentiles. I'm here because of the ministry that I've had. His preaching of the gospel has landed him in a place of being incarcerated. And then that reminds him, oh, yeah. I've had this privilege of preaching the gospel to Jew and to Gentile and being on the cutting edge of what God is doing in the world. And he's like, I can't go continue on with a prayer until I fill you guys in on this. You feel the emotion of this? This is not just like cold logic and Paul is going through his outline and just, no, there is heart and there is emotion in this where he's like, I'm the prisoner for you Gentiles. And this is awesome that I get to be in that place, that I get to be on the cutting edge of what God is doing in the world, that I get to be on the ground floor of this new thing that God is doing. You want to get in on the best investment the world has ever seen. You want to be part of the greatest team that has ever been assembled in history. Be part of the greatest movement that has ever swept the planet. You get to join Paul in his mission of the, of the gospel. And so then he'll come back in verse 14 and he'll pray. Now think about what he has just said. What is, what is triggering this? Second part of Ephesians 2 that we looked at last week. He has celebrated the fact that Jew and Gentile are one in Christ. That there is ethnic unity and racial unity in the church of Jesus Christ through the gospel, unheard of. That the gospel of Jesus not only reconciles us to God, but it reconciles us to each other. And that had never been seen before. That had never occurred in, in, in the time before Paul. And so that is sort of triggering this thing in his mind to say, this is, this is the mystery, this is the plan that God is accomplishing in the world, and I get to be a part of it. So his prayer, which sort of prayed part of that a minute ago, is that the believers would have love. If God has created unity in the body of Christ, the way that we are going to enjoy that unity is through, through love. Love is going to be an essential expression of that unity. If we've been made one, we should learn to love each other as one. That's the, the overall logic of this. So verse 1, for this cause, I, the prisoner of Jesus Christ. And then notice verse 13. He comes back around to talk about a situation. I desire that you faint not at my tribulations. They know Paul's under house arrest. They may be discouraged and frustrated. And what Paul is saying is, look at the suffering. My arrest, the suffering that I am, I am undergoing right now, is part of the plan of God. It is part of what God is doing in this world. And so it matters. We get to join God in his mission of making a new humanity. We get to join God in his plan of calling out a people for his name. So you want God to use you. Do you want to get to the end of your life and not be like, man, I really, I really blew it. You realize every single day is getting you one day closer to your death. 
right? And there's nothing you can do to stop it. You can't hit pause. There's no hitting rewind. There's no putting it into slow motion. We're, we're moving along, and it feels like as the movie plays, it gets put into double speed and into quadruple speed, and it goes faster and faster. And one day we'll get to the end of our lives, and we'll be like, okay, what really mattered? Let me give you some keys here to living a life that matters, that we can learn here from the Apostle Paul. And it all involves the gospel. The first key to living a life that really, truly matters is this. We must understand the gospel. Got to understand the gospel. So verse 2, Paul interrupts himself. He says, if ye have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God, which is given to me, to you, word, how that by revelation he has made known unto me the mystery. Okay, so you notice that word mystery, and you're like, do, 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 mystery, like who done it? Okay, that's not really the, the idea. He uses the term again in verse 4. He says, when you read, you will understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ. He uses it again in verse 9, that you would understand the plan of the mystery. Like, what does he mean by this, this term mystery? Let me just kind of give it to you in a nutshell. Mystery is shorthand for the gospel. All right? The, the, the term mystery means something that is secret but has now been made known. He defines it for us in verse 5. It wasn't known in other ages. But it's now been made known. It's, it was the once hidden but now revealed secret of God. You know, people talk about, well, it's an open secret. Like, try this new restaurant. It's an open secret. Best restaurant in Mobile. That's what the term mystery means. It's something that God has made known. And Paul uses this term in other places. And it always comes back to what God has done in Christ to save sinners. So John read for us Colossians 1, which is written about the same time. Paul says, the mystery is Christ in you the hope of glory. The mystery is this, that Jesus indwells his people, that we're the new covenant temple of God, and we have this hope of glory, that we have this anticipation of being with God one day for eternity. Over in Ephesians chapter 6, just over a few pages to the right, in verse 19, Paul says, pray for me that utterance may be given, that I may, may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel. Okay, so here he's equating the mystery is the gospel. The good news of Jesus that is now being published and made known and that people are hearing and responding to. So Paul says, okay, we've got to understand the gospel. So verse 2, he's saying, you've heard dispensational. Okay, we don't use the word dispensation. The idea here is stewardship. The word could mean stewardship. Okay, that still doesn't really connect with us as much. But here's what, what a steward would be. You, you own a bunch of property. You're, you're a landowner, a householder. And you've got a guy who manages everything for you. Uh, maybe a good equivalent is your, your financial guy. Like, okay, I've got a financial guy. You're like, I want you to invest this money for me. I don't want my financial guy taking the money and then, like, going to Disney World with it, right? It's my money, and he is managing it on my behalf. That's the idea of a steward. Paul's saying, you've heard about the stewardship, the responsibility. God has entrusted something with me. Now, what is he entrusted in verse 2? He's entrusted the grace of God. The message that Paul is declaring is the message of grace, of God's favor. We just saw in Ephesians 2, verse 8 and 9, by grace you are saved. God's favor to sinners who deserve his wrath. Paul's saying, God has given me this message, this precious message of God's grace to go and make known. Now, as a steward, he's not to take and go blow it at Disney World, right? God's grace is not given to us to just sort of like kick back and be like, oh, good, I've got God's grace. I'm going to heaven. I'm good to go. But it's a message that we protect and that we declare. When somebody loans you something, okay, so somebody's like, hey, I'm going to loan you my nail gun. Hopefully, when someone loans you the nail gun, you don't like chuck it off the roof and be like, ah, it'll be fine, and psh, crashes on the ground. You treat it with some level of respect because you, you want them to loan it to you again in the future. Maybe you've been on the other side of that equation where you have loaned somebody a tool and it's come back in multiple pieces, uh, if at all. You're not likely to loan that again. Uh, basically, the idea of being a steward is you're going to take it because it's valuable and it doesn't belong to you. You're going to guard it very carefully. Guard the gospel. So we're going to understand the gospel. We must understand that the gospel is a stewardship of grace. The gospel message is not try harder and be more moral. The gospel message is a message of God's grace. That is what makes it offensive to this world is that we are saved because of the generosity of God and not because of our merit. And as Paul made clear last week, not because of our melanin. 
We're saved by God's grace, and it is pure gift that we had nothing to do with. So we've got to understand the gospel, verse 2, it's a stewardship of grace. But as we consider, continue to think about understanding the gospel, verse 3, he says, Okay, I want you to, you guys have heard how God's given this to me, and it's for you guys. He's, I'm making it known to y'all. How that by revelation it was made known unto me. Make it very simple, make, it, make this clear. Paul is saying this, I didn't come up with this message. Sometimes uh, secular scholars will treat Paul as the founder of Christianity. That he came along and he just sort of was this religious innovator and just changed everything everybody believed and came up with this new idea. Paul is making it really clear. I'm not an innovator. I'm a recipient of revelation. God has revealed his truth to me. He's given it to me and now I'm passing it on to you. When we come to the gospel, you and I do not have liberty to change the message. We don't have liberty to come along and say, hey, let me put a little add-on. It's going to be by grace through faith and baptism. Or by grace through faith and send $1,000 to our ministry on your credit card. Like We do not have the liberty to do that because it is something that God has revealed. It is God's revelation. And that's where the idea of mystery comes in, comes in here. Biblically speaking, the idea of mystery is something that God has to make known that we would never come and figure out on our own. Okay, it's, it's not something that, well, I could have just sort of reasoned my way to the gospel. That's never going to happen. Some of the, the brightest minds in the world, Plato, Aristotle, they got a lot right when they looked at the world. But they would never have dreamed in a thousand years that the way to be right with God is through God sending his own son to this world to die in the place of sinners so that anyone who repents would be forgiven. Every man-made religion has the same hallmarks. Think about it. Every religion is basically, here's God, here's you, you've got to do something to get to God. Uh, that tells me that, that like, if I want to dis- determine what are the fingerprints of man's tampering on a religion, there's going to be some system of good works. So if I look at Islam, if I look at Roman Catholicism, if I look at Buddhism or Hinduism, they're all ways that man does something to get to God. Christianity totally explodes that paradigm and says, God comes to you. God comes and rescues you from your sin. The religions aren't all just different ways that eventually get to the same mountain peak. No, in Christianity, you're at the bottom of the mountain and you've got two broken legs and God comes off the mountain to rescue you and carry you to the mountain peak. That's Christianity. And it's not something that man came up with. It's not a man-made religion. It's the revelation of God. And Paul says it was made known to me. Now, when was it made known to him? If you jump back just a few pages to Paul's first letter, the letter to the Galatians. Earlier in his ministry, he says the same thing in verse 11, Galatians 1, verse 11. For I certify you, brethren, okay, I'm, I'm telling you the truth, I'm not making this up, that the gospel, the good news, which was preached by me, is not after men. I didn't get it from, from human beings. For I neither received it from men, neither was I taught it, but by the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's like Jesus told me what this good news was. If you've heard of my conversation in the past in the Jews' religion, okay, you heard how I used to live, how that beyond measure I persecuted the church of God and I wasted it. And then verse 15, but when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb and called me by his grace to reveal his son in me, that I might preach him among the heathen, immediately I conferred not with flesh and blood. Paul saying, on that road to Damascus, I had an encounter with the risen Christ. He revealed himself to me, and he revealed the good news, the way of salvation, the message that I was to preach. Paul's saying, I didn't make it up. It's God's revelation. If we're going to find out how to be right with God, we're not going to figure that out by staring through a telescope or a microscope or a test tube. It's not going to be found through sort of empirical investigation. We're not going to find it by parsing out syllogisms through human reason. It's only going to come by God revealing himself to us. And he's done that. He's revealed himself in Jesus Christ and then given us revelation into what Jesus has done through his word. It's the message of the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus. So we've got to understand the gospel. The gospel is a message of God's grace. It's a message that God himself has revealed. But we continue on. We find out in verse 4, it's a message that is all about Jesus. Now Paul says, I wrote before about this mystery. He says that in verse 3, you know, when did he write it for? I think he's just talking about what he wrote in the previous paragraph. Maybe he's talking about the book of Colossians. But he's like, I've written about this stuff before. 
about the, this mystery, this plan of God. Whereby, when ye read, ye may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ. Okay, if you want to understand the mystery, it's not going to be discovered by, by contemplating your navel. It's going to be, it'll be discovered by reading God's word. And he says, notice what he calls it, the mystery of Christ. And that could be it's a mystery that's about Christ or a mystery that belongs to Christ. Or it could be the mystery which is Christ. God's plan for human history is Jesus. God's way of salvation is Jesus. Biblical Christianity is not a moral system. Yes, there is moral teaching. But Christianity, first and foremost, is a relationship with Jesus Christ. Holiness is found in Christ. If you find holiness somewhere else, it's heresy. It's not holiness. It's found in Christ and in Christ alone. It is all about Jesus. He's the foundation, the chief cornerstone of the church. He's the message that's on our lips. He's the object that we praise. We sing to him. We pray through him. It's all about Christ. It strikes me that in many churches, the messages that are preached are basically sanctified self-help with a little bit of Bible sprinkled on top that you could sort of take Jesus out and the message would still work. That's not really Christianity. Okay, Jesus is not sort of an add-on that we can add or take away as, as necessary to what we do. Jesus is the throbbing heartbeat of our faith. Take Jesus away and we've got nothing. Now, what is it specifically about Jesus? Okay, he's called Christ. Okay, what, what, that's not just his last name or, or something like that. That's a title. He's the promised Messiah. The one God promised centuries before who came. He kept God's promises He's Jesus. He lived a sinless life that you and I could never live. And most importantly, he dies on the cross for our sins and rises again, securing our forgiveness, securing our salvation. We need Jesus because of our sin. So we've got to understand the gospel, this gospel that is, that is about God's grace, this gospel that's all about Jesus, this gospel that verse 5 is the culmination of God's plan. He's saying in verse 5, this mystery, in other ages it was not made known unto the sons of men. Now, sons of men, what does that mean? Humanity generally did not have this message. Now, the Jewish people, they had, you know, they understood that there would be one coming, and there were others who came to recognize that. But by and large, this message was not widely published or widely known. And specifically that the Gentiles would be fellow heirs with the Jews. Now, you read the Old Testament, you find, you'll, you'll learn this. There were hints of this. God had told Abraham that in you, all families of the earth will be blessed. You read in Isaiah, you find out that through the Messiah, there's going to be a standard raised to the nations, calling them to believe. But what was not revealed in the Old Testament was that Jews and Gentiles would be one body. As far as the Jewish people were concerned, what was promised is that, well, the Gentiles would just convert to become Jews. What Paul is saying is in the fulfillment of that promise, God does something really surprising. And he's like, I'm going to create something new, the church of Jesus Christ, where your ethnicity does not matter at all. It doesn't matter if you're a Jew. It doesn't matter if you're a Gentile. It doesn't matter if you're black. It doesn't matter if you're white. It doesn't matter whether you're a citizen or an immigrant. It doesn't matter your socioeconomic standing. What matters is that you are in Christ. I think that's the culmination of God's plan for the ages. Think what happened to the Tower of Babel. The Tower of Babel, all the nations are divided. They go separate ways. But Pentecost, we get that reversed, where the good news is spoken and everyone hears the gospel in their own tongue, and God begins to create a new nation, the people of God, the church of Jesus Christ where Babel is beginning to be reversed. This nation without borders, the church of Jesus Christ, it's the fulfillment of everything that God promised. Isn't it interesting that when God fulfills his promises, it's always surprising? It's never as simple as, in you all families of the earth will be blessed. Oh, look, everyone becomes Jews. Like, no, God fulfills that promise, but in a way that is bigger than the promise. If you will, when God fulfills his promises, he gives us a super fulfillment. Uh, God promises land to, this, to Abraham and to his seed. And you read through the story of the Bible, you know how that gets fulfilled? A brand new heaven and a new earth. Like way bigger than a little ribbon of land in the Middle East. 
God fulfills this in such a surprising and exciting way. And that's all part of the gospel. Now, here's what Paul is building up to is verse 6. He says, uh, make a difference, I've got to understand the gospel, and here's one of the implications of the gospels, of the gospel, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs and of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ. Notice this phrase, by the gospel, essentially equating the mystery with the gospel, the good news of the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus. One of the things it secures is Jew and Gentile being of one body. That's stunning. That's stunning that there is this unity. And all the more stunning when you consider how much they hated each other in the ancient world. Now, Paul makes the same point in Galatians. uh, Galatians chapter 3, verse 28. He says, For there is neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither bond nor free, there's neither male nor female, for ye are all one in Christ Jesus. And if ye be Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise that we inherit the promise that God made to Abraham. One body. Now, this is central to Paul's point in Ephesians. He's calling the church to enjoy unity. Saying one of the implications of the gospel is that we would enjoy unity. I think we have, tend to have a re, reductionist gospel. If I were to ask sort of the poll, the average Christian, and maybe you would fall into this group as well, like, hey, what does the gospel do? We might say something, well, it forgives our sin and gets us to heaven. Believe in Jesus, you'll be saved, you'll go to heaven when you die. And that is gloriously true. We need our sins forgiven. We want our eternal destiny to be secure. But the gospel, as Paul describes it, is so much more robust. It transforms not only our eternal destiny, but our present relationships. Right? It transforms the way that we relate to other people. It it changes the way that you relate to people when they annoy you. Be ye kind one to another tenderhearted, forgiving one another. Why? Even as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you. Like, because God forgave you in the gospel, you forgive other people. Even that person who wronged you horribly. Because whatever they did to you is not as bad as the abuse your sin heaped on God. That's the gospel that he's appealing to. Husbands, love your wives. Well, as long as she makes dinner and does the things that I want her to do and No, even as Christ loved the church. Christ loved the church, not when we measured up, because we never do. The reason husbands love their wives is not just because it's a nice thing to do, but it's because the gospel fundamentally transforms the way you live out your marriage. Wives be subject to your husbands, even as the church is subject to Christ. Back to the reality of the gospel. Why do we pursue sexual purity? Because we are the body of Christ and we belong to him. Why do we forgive? Because the gospel enables us to forgive. Why do we avoid lying? Later on in Ephesians, Paul will say, put away lying, speak truth, every man with his neighbor, because you are members one of another. The gospel has made you one, therefore you owe the truth to each other. And on and on it goes. The gospel is not just, here's how to get saved. Okay, check that box now. Put the gospel back onto a shelf and go on living your life. Here's why this matters. There are so many Christians who are trapped in this cycle of legalism and guilt, just constantly feeling bad of like, okay, I got saved by grace through faith, but now I really got to work. So I get in, I'm forgiven. Now it's up to me to sort of achieve a standard and keep some rules, and a lot of these rules are man-made rules, and you're always low-grade guilty all the time. The gospel says I'm totally accepted in God's sight, and I don't seek to please God from a place of like trying to earn his favor, but from a place of already having his favor. What I'm trying to impress on your heart, understanding the gospel is more than knowing the Romans road. It's knowing that the gospel is the ground on which I stand. It's the glue that holds the church together. It's the fuel in the tank that motivates me to live the Christian life. You want to live a life that's going to matter? You've got to understand the gospel. Now, it doesn't mean less than the Romans wrote. It just means more saying, if that's true, what are the implications of that? Now, let me move on to the second big part of this paragraph. Beginning in verse 7, Paul transitions from his understanding of the gospel, like that God has revealed the mystery to him, to the fact now that he makes that known. We go from the revelation of the gospel to the proclamation of the gospel. So we're going to live a life that matters. Not only must we understand the gospel, we must declare the gospel. 
Whereof, okay, notice, okay, verse 7, whereof. What's that referring back to? The gospel, okay, in verse 2. I was made a minister. Now, we use that term minister to be like, oh, so-and-so was a, is a minister, like the people on those, those Jane Austen things with their weird collars, and it's kind of this status symbol, like reverend. Minister means a servant, okay, a table waiter. That's the idea. I was made a servant of the gospel. I, the gospel is the master that, that, that I now serve. Paul's like, I made a minister of the gospel according to the gift of the grace of God. Do you think being in a place of service would be like, okay, it's my duty. Paul's like, oh, no, this is a privilege for me to be a minister of the gospel. Give it unto me by the effectual working of his power. He talked about that in chapter 1, verse 19, just the immense power of God. You know, why does Paul need God's power to be a minister of the gospel? Because Paul was a scoundrel. Paul tried to get people murdered. Paul tried to destroy the church. He, he persecuted. Paul was a bigot. Paul was an anti-Christian bigot who tried to get the church banned. He was going all the way to other countries to try to shut the church down. And so in, in 1 Timothy 1, he says, it's totally God's grace. He says, I am the chief of sinners, and God has made me a minister of the gospel. This is astounding. He never gets over that. That's why he says in verse 8, unto me who am least than the least of all saints. This is not false humility, where Paul is sort of fishing for compliments by tearing him. You ever run into someone who does that? You're like, oh, I'm a horrible cook. It's just so you'll say like, no, you're actually a really good cook. Um, that's not what he's doing here. He, his honest self-assessment in light of the glory and the majesty of God is I am the least of the least. This is a pretty sweet grammatical thing Paul does. He takes a um, superlative, least, and then adds the comparative. So this is really bad English and actually bad Greek. But the, if we were to translate literally what he says here, I am the leaster of all saints. It's like when your kids are like, I'm the moster bestest. Like that's what Paul is doing here to be like, I'm at the bottom of the, the pile here. So he says, okay, when it comes to sinners, I'm number one sinner. When it comes to saints, I'm at the bottom of the list of saints. That's his, that's his attitude as he prepares to declare the gospel. He's not declaring the gospel from a point of sort of moral superiority and being like, I have it all figured out now, all those idiots out there in the world, if only they knew what I know. No, 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 he's coming from this place of humility of knowing I don't deserve to be in, but God has brought me in. So what's this message we are to proclaim? If you're going to live a life that matters, you have to proclaim the gospel. By the way, this is not just for Paul. It's not just for pastors. This is for all Christians. Okay? All of us are given this commission. Um, just flip over to Ephesians 4. Paul is speaking to all Christians in verse 15. He says, here's what we're supposed to be do, doing. We're supposed to be speaking the truth in love. All of us have a speaking ministry, a speaking the truth in love that God has called us to. We're all given that task. So what's the message we're to declare? When I say declare the gospel, what do I mean? Well, verses 7 and 8, did you notice a term back in Ephesians 3? Do you notice a term that Paul repeats a whole bunch? According to the gift of grace given and then verse 8, unto me, I'm the least of saints, is this grace given. The idea of grace and giving is almost redundant. Grace is generosity. So here's generosity that is generously given. It's like really super redundant for him to say that. Suggests to me the message that Paul is declaring is the message of God's grace. He's like, I'm exhibit A. If you want to see how generous and favorable and merciful God is, he says, just look at me. If God can forgive me, God can forgive anybody. That's Paul's message. He revels in his appointment as a servant and as a preacher. The mystery that has been revealed to Paul, he's telling to other people. Now, you know, sometimes you want to know, like, the, the, the secrets. Like, oh, can you tell me the secret? And, the, and, and the, the joy of having the secret is that other people don't, right? Okay, C.S. Lewis talks about inner circles, inner rings. Like, the part of being on the, in, like, the inner circle is that other people don't get to be in. It's sort of like the joy comes from, you don't get to know the little secrets of the guild that I have. For Paul, it's the opposite. God's given me the secret, the mystery, so that everybody can get in on it. I want everybody to get in on this grace and this feast that I have been granted. That's his attitude, proclaiming the grace of God. I think sometimes we as Christians get a reputation for being self-righteous and proud and judgmental. And I think if we would revel in the grace of God more and more, it would make us humble. 
The best people to declare God's grace are the people who know that they need it. If I know that I need grace, let me give it to you. I I can come from a place where that's going to be persuasive. But proclaiming the message of the gospel is not just about proclaiming the grace of God, but it's proclaiming the good news of God. Verse 8 He says, unto me who am the least of all saints is this grace given. And then here here he says, that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. That The word translated should preach is the word evangelize. That I should, if we want to turn the word gospel into a verb, that I should gospel, that I should good news the riches of Christ. So it's basically the verb form of the word gospel from verse 6. Declaring good news. And what is the good news that he's declaring? The unsearchable riches of Christ. Riches that cannot be counted. If I were to give you a trillion dollars, one trillion doesn't sound like a much. Okay, that's, that's like a lot of money. That if you were to put those on pallets with $100 bills, we'd be filling all of Sam's Club. You're going to be there counting all of those. Like, if you don't bother counting, just enjoy the money. That's the idea. I'm declaring the unsearchable riches. That word unsearchable literally means not to be tracked out. Like, there's no tracks left behind. You can trace these out. The riches of Christ. What I think is interesting, can you catch the paradox here? Earlier he said, God has made the mystery known to me to where, like, on one level he's like, I know it, but on another level I can't know it. Later on he's going to pray that Christians would know the love of Christ that's beyond knowledge. So you can know it, but you cannot get it comprehensively because it is, it is infinite. We can know something of God's grace and his mercy, but we can't know it all. We're going to spend all of eternity learning more of all of God's grace. The front of the clause, okay, we got like he's going to preach this among the Gentiles. He puts that at the front. He says, that I get to, to the Gentiles, proclaim this message. For Paul, going to the Gentiles is not, well, the Jews wouldn't have me, so I go to the Gentiles. I guess that's the second best thing. For me, he's like, this is a privilege to go to the outcasts and to the strangers and to the ones that people know, nobody wants anything to do with, to declare to them the unsearchable riches of Christ. Now, what are the riches that he is talking about? Everything that Ephesians has talked about. Or a few weeks ago, we talked about the, the, the blessing in Ephesians 1. It is election in Christ, adoption in Christ, redemption in Christ, revelation in Christ, inheritance in Christ, sealing in Christ, power in Christ, new life in Christ, inclusion in Christ. He's saying, all of these riches I make known. And by the way, if you're a Christian today, all of those are in your spiritual bank account. How tragic to reduce the gospel to nothing more than a get-out-of-hell-free card. It's the riches of Jesus. It's the complete transformation of our lives. It is the subversion of our worldviews. So Paul's like, I'm making the gospel known to these people. You want to live a life that matters? Make the gospel known to someone. Do you want to be on the cutting edge of what is happening in the world? No, you don't have to join the CIA to do that. No. You want to be on the cutting edge? Disciple someone. You want to be on the cutting edge? Bring your kids to church. You want to be on the cutting edge? Do devotions with your family and tell them about Jesus. You want to be at the center, the epicenter of what God is doing in the world? Give the gospel to your coworker. Simple. Now he goes on in verse 9. To say, not only is, am I making known the riches of Christ, but I am making, verse 9, all men see the plan of the mystery. The, the, the term fellowship, the, the word there is the, it's the same word translated administration, dispensation in verse 2. The plan that God is, is unveiling. So I want to enlighten all. I want to, make, I want to see light bulbs come on. Like That's what Paul is after. I want to see spiritual light bulbs come on for people to understand what, what Christ has done for them. He said, I want all to see that Jew, Gentile. Every single one of us have some kind of platform for declaring the gospel. We all have a web of relationships that we are enmeshed in. And I, I would imagine that if we were to all sort of List out our social networks this morning, not like Facebook and Twitter, but just the people you actually see and interact with on a daily basis. I don't know. It's probably safe to say in a, in a given week or a given month, there are 
let's just say, for sake of illustration, 25 unique people in your life that wouldn't necessarily overlap with anyone else in this room. I'm not good at math. But that's a lot of people that all of us have interaction with and connections with throughout the week, throughout the month, that we get to be a witness to. What if instead of thinking of evangelism as an event on the church calendar, we thought of it as a responsibility we have throughout the week? What if we thought of the gospel not as something that we give once a year at our fall festival or at our Easter service, but we thought of it as this message that God has entrusted me with to take into the unique place where God's put me? You know, who gave you the job that you have? God did. Who put you on the street on which you live? God did. Who put you in the center of the relationship that you're in? God did. He has determined the times and the places appointed where we would live. Could it be that God has given you the job, the family, the friends, the job, the the home that you have, so that you could uniquely testify to Jesus in that space? And could it be that you are able to reach people that I would never have a connection with? Could it be that the set of hobbies that you have connect you with a unique group of people that someone else in this room wouldn't be able to connect with? I talked about football at the beginning of the service. Like, I'm not going to connect with someone talking about touchdowns and passing and yards and such, because that's not my thing. But some of you can. Like, you've got that in with people to where that can be the conversation starter. Now, somebody wants to talk about books, like, in the library, I'm cool with it. We have to whisper, be real quiet, because it's the library. But, you know, we all have places where we can connect. So what is Paul making known, verse 9? The secret plan, the, the plan that God is revealing which from the beginning of the world has been hitting God, like God has held his cards close to his vest. The plan of redemption was not cooked up like post-fall, like Adam and Eve sin, and God's like, oops, didn't see that coming. Let's come up with a plan really fast, like Jesus is going to have to go. Like the plan to redeem mankind, all the way down to who is included in that plan, God determined from the foundation of the world. And he's making it known how sweet is that, that you get to declare a message that was conceived in eternity past, and I get to have it on my lips to take into my workplace, my home, my family, my living room. How can you make Jesus known? But specifically, what he is talking about, again, the mystery, look back in verse 6, the unity of Jew and Gentile. It's not just the message of how we get saved, but it's the display of what happens when we get saved. The unity of Cloverleaf Baptist Church is either an honest or a false testimony of the power of the gospel to the community around us. If we're a church that has the reputation of being divisive and everybody's squabbling all the time and there's big fights all the time and lawsuits and everybody hates everyone and bad Google reviews, that reflects badly on Jesus. It tells the world a lie about what Jesus has accomplished. He has accomplished the unity of his people. And so we ought to live that out because it is a testimony to the world around us. So it's been this mystery that God has hidden in himself, the God who created all things by Jesus Christ, verse 9. The creator is also the redeemer. The creator is already under the, doing the work of recreating. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. The original creation is being now recreated in Jesus, and one day there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth, and it has started. And if you want to see phase one of God's renovation project, you're sitting in it. The church, phase one of God recreating the whole world. Now, look at verse 10. This goes off the charts. You say, I want to go tell people about Jesus. What is it that we are doing? Well, we're, we're declaring the unsearchable riches of Jesus. We're making people see the plan that God had from the foundation of the world to include Jews and Gentile in, his, in the body of Jesus. For what end? Verse 10, to the intent, for this purpose, that now under the principalities and powers... In heavenly places, okay, so we're not just talking about like presidents and senators. We're talking about demonic and angelic powers who are peering over the parapets of heaven or demons who are watching from the, the, the outside. We're making known to them by the church the manifold wisdom of God. So here's what God is doing when we declare the gospel. God is saying to the angels and to the demons, look at my wisdom. Look at my manifold wisdom. That's the same word in the... Greek Old Testament, to talk about Joseph's coat of many colors. 
Look at God's multicolored wisdom that is displayed in his multicolored church. Look at the many multifaceted wisdom of God that conceives salvation. And who's that being displayed to? The principalities and the powers. The most mighty angels. Stoop to look into what you and I have according to 1 Peter chapter 1. And the demons, I assume they're watching in as well. And they're seeing, look at God's wisdom in saving sinners. The reason why I say demons are included in this is in Ephesians 6, these exact same words, principalities and powers, are used to refer to the spiritual powers, the demonic realms against which we struggle. This is staggering. In saving sinners like you and me, God is not only like displaying his grace that will be on display for ages to come. He's not only showing his power that can raise sinners from spiritual death. He's showing off his wisdom. Not only to a watching world, but to a watching angelic realm. And this is what gets me. If you like to underline words, verse 10, underline these three words. By the church. What's the stage on which this drama is unfolding? The church. God is standing center stage, displaying to the world and to the angels and to the demons, the audience before him. He's displaying his wisdom on the stage through the vehicle of the church. And I don't think this just means the universal church through the ages. I'm thinking even down to Cloverleaf Baptist Church. The church is a display of God's grace as he saves sinners. It is a display of God's power as he gives us new life. And it is a display of his wisdom as he unites his multicolored people. You see, wisdom that can unite natural enemies into eternal friends is great wisdom indeed. People will go to counselors and be like, help us reconcile our marriage. Like, thank you for your wisdom in reconciling us. God's saying, I've done something bigger. I've taken Jew and Gentile and not only made them sort of get along, but put them together where they love each other. That's wisdom. This elevates the ordinary Sunday service. I was just going to church today. I don't know if I'm going to go today. I'm feeling kind of tired, whatever. There are no ordinary worship services. Every worship service of the people of God, every gathering of the saints is a display of God's wisdom. Our love for each other reflects the love of God. Our embrace of the stranger, our welcome of the outcast signals to watching angels that God's work of remaking the world has already begun. And by the way, it shouts to demons, you're toast. Because if God has started it, he's going to finish it. And the fact that he started it is, is, is right here. The evidence of it is right here in this room. The vision for the church here is absolutely breathtaking. We can't relegate the church to sort of a, a peripheral part of our week when it is at the very center of God's plan for history. Participating in the life of the church joyfully, fully, and eagerly is not an optional extra for the super spiritual when it's the center of God's plan. Let that reality sink in when we come together to sing a song that you're like, I don't really like Let that reality sink in when the word is open and you're feeling a little bit tired from a long week. Let that reality sink in when you struggle to connect with someone else in your fellowship group. What if we viewed church not as a religious marketplace for us to get our needs met, but as a stage for God to display his power and his glory? What if we treated it not as a peripheral weekend activity, but as the epicenter of divine work of God in the world? What if we treated church as the given in our schedule rather than soccer practice and then try to slot church around that? What if we gave it the place in our lives that it has in God's plan? So we go along here in declaring the gospel, verses 11 and 12, according to the eternal purpose of God that he purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord. Like what God is working out here is his eternal plan But look at what it does in the presence in whom we have right now. Boldness and access with confidence by the faith of him. When we declare the gospel, we declare the accomplishment of Christ. That word translated purposed in verse 11 is the idea of accomplished. God's eternal plan, he decisively accomplished through Jesus. When he said it is finished, God had completed everything that was necessary to save sinners. There's nothing that's added to that. 
And the result of the accomplished plan of God is you and me have access. And it doesn't matter if you're Jew or Gentile, we get in on the same ground through the same door, which is Jesus. Boldness is the idea of freeness of speech. Access is the idea of the door being open. And we come boldly to the throne of grace to worship and to seek God's face. That's the message of the gospel that we are to declare. What a stunning message. There's all these narratives running around our world today, the narratives of critical theory and social justice and expressive individualism and live your own truth. Wouldn't you agree this is a far better story? Wouldn't you agree this is a far more unifying, far more beautiful, far more attractive story? What if we learn how to declare the gospel like this over against the false gospels of our, of our culture? Now, I want to give us a final point, and it's going to be brief. We touched on it already. Verses 1 and verses 13 have the same idea. Paul is in prison. And yet he's writing with all of this enthusiasm and confidence and like, I've got this purpose. You're like, oh, Paul, you're in prison or you're under house arrest, technically. How does that work? Brings us to this third key. We need to experience the gospel. Paul in verse 1 says, I'm the prisoner of Jesus Christ. Verse 13, he says, I desire that you faint not of my tribulations for you. Which is your glory? For Paul, the gospel was not just the message of how he got saved. It transformed the way he looked at his circumstances. For Paul, he looked at, I'm in prison because of the gospel. Taking it to Gentiles, that's why he got arrested in in. Uh, Jerusalem, and, and he's in prison for a couple of years in Caesarea, then appeals to Caesar, then he's under house arrest for two more years in Rome. It's because of the gospel. He's saying, this is why I'm suffering. So it gives Paul purpose. When we experience the gospel like this, you no longer have to look at the suffering in your life as some random event that happens. But like Paul, he says, I'm the prisoner, not of Nero, But of Jesus, he's the one who calls the shots. He's the one whose plan is being fulfilled, and I'm cool with that. Even if that plan involves me getting a diagnosis that's not super encouraging, even if that plan involves some painful relationship things that happen, even if that plan involves difficulty and heartache, the good news of Jesus has transformed my eternity, and that changes everything about how I live my daily life. That gives us strength in suffering. It gives us purpose as we go through hardship. So do you want to live a life that matters? Do you want to be the center of the biggest thing that is happening in the universe? Understand the gospel. Declare the gospel. Experience the gospel. Now, I want to say one final word. If you're not a Christian here today, there's a prerequisite before any of this, and that is receive the gospel. You can understand the message of Jesus died on the cross because of my sin, that I'm a sinner who deserves hell. But there has to be the place where you personally embrace that message by faith. It's not just sort of automatically like, oh, there it is. I'm I'm in church, therefore I'm good to go. You personally, individually must receive that message by faith. The access we have into God's presence, according to verse 11, uh, verse 12, is faith in him. Trust, confidence in Jesus and him alone and not your own works. If you are not a Christian today, I plead with you to call out to Jesus.